it's common to have like plastic over the couches to try to like extend the life of things. I can't laugh at that because my TV still has plastic on it. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Roger. And welcome to The Middle. Where we try to have thoughtful conversations about awkward topics on our search to find the middle. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I act as if God exists. Put your masks on. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Andy. G'day, Roger. How are you doing? Good. What have you been up to? We're going away for our anniversary tomorrow. Lovely. Where are you going? I don't know. No idea. So we do this thing every year where we take in turns to organize uh, what we're going to do so last year it was my turn and so it's my wife's turn this year but last year I, I took my wife to see a musical called come from away and if you don't know anything about this this musical it's essentially a story about in newfoundland following september 11 all the planes were diverted to this remote part of of canada and this town was overwhelmed and, and swamped by by planes but anyway they're pretty crafty on the stage and they turn chairs, you know, regular tables and chairs and, and all these props they have on stage and to make it into a, an aeroplane and it looks pretty good. It's pretty effective. But my wife didn't know anything about this musical going in. So she's like hearing them sing about how, like she's like, what what are they doing? Like why are they sitting like that? And and what <laughs> wait, why are, where are they? Why are all these planes landing? So she couldn't connect that it was like to do with September 11 and that they're on a plane and that they're in this remote place. Like, because most people would have gone into that show knowing that context and she didn't. So she she was just totally confused for like half the show. You know what that reminds me of sometimes? It's like my mum, she never grew up watching much TV, right? And definitely not a lot of movies. And we take it for granted how many movies and we've consumed like popular movies and the same kind of themes repeat over and over again. And so as a result, we kind of know what to expect in most movies, the plot twists, the kind of features. But when she watches a movie in the rare times that she does, she's so fucking confused <laughs> because everything is like a plot twist to her. Um, so the same kind of thing happens where she's got a lot of questions. So it can be quite an interesting experience watching a movie with her. Yeah. So tomorrow it's, it was my wife's turn to uh, book everything and um, I've got no idea what we're doing tomorrow, but uh, I'll let you know next week. So can I ask you something? Throughout, I mean, I, I love the idea, by the way, because I think it one of the hardest things when you've been in a relationship for a while too is the surprise is the kind of breaking the mold so i think this is a really good way to do it but does it then become a bit of a challenge to make sure that what you do year to year kind of matches the same standard and quality and thought well i mean sort of in in some respects it, there's a pretty who's tried winning and tested, pretty much the, who's winning <laughs> well look there's a pretty tried and tested template for for this it's usually we we go somewhere we stay in a hotel but in terms of impressing each other like to give you a sense of where we're at and maybe that is like a symptom of 11 years of marriage but we both kind of had this these sort of guilty looks this morning and we said to each other oh, have you gotten me a present ah oh, kind of oh, i'm so glad you asked because i haven't gotten you anything yet and <laughs> and then my wife said um today oh okay well look look let's not worry about getting gifts this year let's just do a nice card with a nice message right and then said, okay, that's that's good. Can, yeah, can damn it, that. baby, that's worse. Now I have to write a message. <laughs> but then, I don't know, it's okay. I've got chat GPT to write it for me. Um, <laughs> but um, Thank you, AI. But then later this evening, I, 
I said to her, oh, I haven't had a chance to go to the shops yet. I haven't got I haven't got that car. And she's like, Me either. It's like, let's just get one tomorrow yeah, when we're when we're when we're at the hotel. I think you should just agree to high five each other really hard <laughs> at the hotel and be like, Yeah, that's it. That's that's the one for this year. Oh, so anyway, anyway, that's not a that's year our um that, that's where things are at uh in, in our household. So do you want to do a quick recap of our last episode on meat eating? Do, do you have any reflections? I know at the time, you know, you've you've thought very deeply about this. You've you know, you've, your values have changed. You've actually changed your lifestyle. Are there things that you wanted to to say to to myself or the or our listeners that you felt like you didn't get across in the last session? Every time I sort of went to you know get a snack or was at the shop or something and. I'm looking at the sausage roll counter at pie pie face. Is it? I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to get the vegan sausage roll today. The cheese and spinach. Yeah, so I I, I often do do that, and it just probably nudged me a little bit more towards the high road, maybe. So I think there's still an aspiration there to to be more pure. But as we spoke last week, I'm not a saint when it comes to this stuff. I'm a bit like a Catholic who um who believes in it but still sins sort of thing. So I guess, um, you know, maybe you need these sort of conversations every now and then to, to keep you honest or whatever. But um, Do you feel like it's um, given you a bit of a kick up the bum to try and tighten up? I, I actually, it was interesting, like, because I listened to a podcast uh, after we recorded ours and sort of an interesting take that I hadn't kind of appreciated before. Like, there's this Jewish fellow, he hosts a podcast and, he was saying he had a guest on about um, you know a range of food topics and they were talking about meat substitutes and alternatives and the like. And he was saying that um, you know because he's kosher, he you know stick to, you know follows the rules of um, a kosher diet. That one of the one of the things you can't do is mix meat and dairy. And so you, as a Jewish person, he doesn't have cheeseburgers. But he was saying that now that there's this you know, this meat alternatives, he can have cheeseburgers because he just has the meat substitute with. Well, he didn't say he does it, but it, he was just talking about it. It just opens this this possibility that you can have a you can have a cheeseburger now if, if in, and stay on Man, a kosher diet. When you're vegan, you don't need an extra layer of kosher rules on top of that. <laughs> it's just like cruel. Yeah. But funnily enough, I was actually reading an article about kosher handling of um, certain animals and how they have to be bled out in a certain way which uh, prevents them from i suppose uh being killed as humanely as possible and that being sometimes a bit of an issue in terms of animal rights so Mm. i'd be interested in getting a jewish jewish perspective on that yeah Uh, and look i mean i guess if i just have one final thought or comment around the episode and maybe it's even just a general comment more than anything else is that you know one of the things about this space is it's very much, and I don't know even if we sort of covered this in the episode, I can't even remember now, but it's a very sort of utilitarian view of the world, right? It's a, let's look at, um, you know, the welfare and look at impacts and look at, you know, we, we'll, we'll do the things, we won't do the things that make us worse off and we'll, we'll do the things that make us better off sort of thing. And, you know, and this is a theme with anything in the context of utilitarian ethics is that, yeah, and and a lot, and even you've made criticisms on this podcast about you know the idea of you know taking that philosophy and then implementing it in the way you live your life. And now yeah. you've talked about it in the context of maybe governments doing things and saying taking like an ultra rationalist approach. And the next thing you know, it you have um, governments stealing organs from healthy people because you know if you take if you kill someone, then you can you know take two organs and save two others. And you know you yeah, it's a net positive or whatever. 
But you're talking um, about Chinese uh, no, Chinese no, inmates? No, 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 not at all. <laughs> and I guess this is sort of in the same remit, although like much less dangerous than that example. And I guess one of the big criticisms of you know utilitarian sort of ethics, I suppose, in the general sense, is that it's hard to translate utilitarianism into a concrete set of rules of how we should live our life because there's so much uncertainty about what are the right things to do and what are the consequences of the decisions we make. So this comes up with things like if you look at long-termism, right? So what are the right ethical decisions we should be making about the longer term? And one of the problems when you're talking about, well, okay, what's the things we do today that will give us the, the best outcome in like a thousand years time? Well, you virtually have no capacity to determine what things we do today. It's the butterfly effect, right? Like we, we can't know what the things we do today that will make us better off in a thousand years time, because it could be that a nuclear holocaust tomorrow might be the thing that makes us better off in a thousand years time. We, we can't know that, right? Yeah. So I think this is a little bit like that in some ways, in the sense that a lot of the stuff we talked about in the last episode were very uncertain and theoretical. Like we can't really know, like we were talking about beef, you know, we can't really know, is it better to eat beef because the cow's life is better than the chicken's? Well, we can speculate it, but we can't really know. Yeah, and I, th- I think in general, when, when you talk about these concepts too, you enter a space where to fully engage with the concept or, in other words, maybe like the thought experiment, you have to almost compartmentalize some of the more practical impacts and reality of that in today's thinking. Because you still need to, you need to get into a space where you can start to explore the boundaries of that concept, and that's what the thought experiment's all about. It's not trying to say, you know, this is the direct advice to your life. It's trying to explore that concept, and then how do you then? Then there's a process of bringing it down into practical terms and looking at other impacts. And I think that's a really hard skill for most people to have. So, what about you? A week on, did you um, eat, get the double quarter pounder, or did you um, <laughs> stick to um, single single serve? You know, I was reflecting a little bit about how I felt and um, when I first heard the news that you were, I suppose, being more vegetarian or eating less meat all those years ago. And I think, you know, back then it, it was very surprising for me. For you, there's always been a little bit of a, a cynical element to your to your character and, like, and it, was, it was just a big surprise It was um, when, when it happened. And actually, I think looking back, I was challenged a little bit in my own thinking because... There was a part of me that knew it was the right thing to do and that causing unnecessary pain was a bad thing, right? And so it's kind of that kick up the pants that, okay, if one of my mates is doing it and thinking it and prioritizing it in his life, why haven't I done the same thing? Um, and I did have that feeling of, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be on the, on the right side of history for this one. So I do remember feeling that way uh, when you initially told me about it and, and feeling a little bit proud of you in some ways that actually you you kind of got into that place oh sorry to disappoint you but look i wouldn't i also wouldn't feel so down about you influencing people and planting seeds i can actually see a merchandising opportunity for us in the middle <laughs> with you know a tofu steak t-shirt coming you know that coming on the grill and and you know so we'll see about that but um i guess reflecting i'll, I'll kind of use my uh recent trip to byron right so there's this place there uh called the farm and I don't know if you've been there or you've heard about the restaurant called Three Blue Ducks. It's quite famous. They've got some cookbooks. And essentially, it's a you know 86-acre property, and it really does that whole kind of from paddock to plate. And part of the experience is you can go onto the grounds. It's beautiful. 
you can see how they manage the livestock. You can see how they harvest all the natural produce on there. And um, they're incredibly passionate about it. They do tours. They do lots of, um, you know, put money back into the into surrounding projects and community projects, you know, very Byron. And it just reinforced to me that it can be done in this way that celebrates the land and that actually the some of these animals actually do have pretty dignified lives. Like they're in good conditions, conditions that I feel are quite comfortable and quite humane up until that day where they become uh, they become food. I think one of the problems with that model that you've just spoken to is while that sounds, you know, quite reasonable and at the margin, yes, that one farm's great, but like, you know, it's infinitesimal as a percentage of total meat consumed in the world. But, you know, the, the, for it to be scalable, it's got to be, you know, efficient and, you know, it's, it's got to be factory-esque, right? Yeah, and I agree. And and I guess that's why when we were talking in the last episode, I think that we both agree that, that uh, you know, mono crop culture and the mass production of meat and all those kind of things, that's obviously, you know, we, we're not on board with that. And that does have impacts then of how much meat we consume overall, um, how accessible those meat products are, well, and, and vegetables, to be honest, in the monocrop kind of category. Uh, so, yeah, I think um, that's that's a whole separate conversation. And maybe this is where it will always like be stuck in in that in this purgatory because you know if if people like me are you know completely agree with the the logic of of the argument and I feel like I'm like a cigarette smoker that knows it's like gives you lung cancer but like a doctor I just, smoking I can't, outside the ER yeah I just can't I can't it's just I've been brought up on it and I need a bit of meat every now and then so and that's just I don't know I. You, that probably makes me ethically in the um, worst possible category because I can't even I can't claim ignorance either. Yeah, I mean you can you can be religious and still masturbate, right? Still feel bad about it. Just as long as you um, how many Hail Marys? Uh, Ooh, what's the going rate for a, a bit of a a cheeky one? I'm sure. Just as long. It's probably as you less think- now. Do you reckon there's inflation with? Uh, um, you know, penance and all that kind of stuff. Oh, just as long as you're not thinking about Mary while you're doing it. Mary Madonna. Madonna complex. All right, let's shift gears. Have you ever been frustrated by something a boomer has said? Well, haven't we all? Well, we we are children of boomers, right? Yes. So, and what do you think about this OK Boomer trend online? Well, this meme's a, a few years old, isn't it? Uh, I think, just trying to think, like, I don't know where it started exactly, but there's certainly a few things that I think have given it some firepower. I think when house prices kind of went up dramatically and you know, there were these boomer voices saying things like, oh, why don't you just stop going and buying avocado and toast and you'll be able to afford a house. And it's like, well, you do realize like a house, you know, you bought a house for like $100,000 and now they're like maybe $2 million, like for the house that <laughs> cost you 100000 So um, The smashed avocado is uh, is definitely um, a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. So look, I, I think there was just a lot of comments like, you know, criticizing oh, look, if you only just didn't do this thing, you'd be able to buy a house without kind of actually doing the maths and still figuring out that, well, actually, no, if they did that thing that you just said, you'd be still many, many orders of magnitude short of being able to enter the housing market. So, you know, okay, boomer, sort of, that was the retort. Yeah. And I think it's coming from a younger generation than us as well, obviously. I mean, all memes are, let's be honest, but I think that... uh, I've seen it kind of trickle down to young, younger and younger people, right? In just that same way of like the music is too loud, you're too old. It's just a way of kind of have that ageism attack on someone online, which I, I find quite hilarious. There was this 
I saw the other day this really funny tagline which which said, I hope this OK Boomer meme or trend is going to end soon. I've had three different occasions where people have said it to me and I'm only 24. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it is getting like harder and harder to survive this one. Yeah, I, I, my son calls me a boomer all the time. Usually if I'm listening to my music, I say, I'll oh, turn, your, turn your boomer music down or turn your you, boomer. Oh so my that's God, boomer no music. Or, yeah, and look, and I mean, I think he gets it from like YouTube, like he just copies it and yeah they they say all the all whatever shenanigans but for him it's not for him it's like when he uses the term like boomer it's got it's actually got nothing to do with age it's it's just he's referring to like certain kind of fuddy-duddy sort of things or or things that he doesn't perceive as cool right it's it's like a boomer thing to do so boomer is a a frame of mind andy not an age (laughs) well i must admit i do have a bit of a boomer mindset didn't we a couple of years back we went and saw a pink floyd uh, cover band yeah and we saw roger waters didn't we as well yeah yeah Yeah. and and i do remember i do remember very vividly in fact you taking us to the the mick jagger and and tina turner uh, special at the um the experience thank you very uh, much workers club i think it was yeah it was um everyone deserved a medal to uh sit through that show (laughs) i think think it proves that we actually weren't we (laughs) (laughs) or you can eat you know you got to support the local arts all right but talking about numbers, you know, and, and just being, you know, age just being a number, let's um let's kind of do a bit of quiz. So let's focus on actual generation timeframes. So what would you classify as a baby boomer? So a baby boomer, as the name suggests, is people born following the baby boom that occurred after the Second World War. So the Second World War ended in 45 and... So from about 1946 on up to sort of, you know, through the 50s and, you know, I think up to probably even early to mid 60s would be that that baby boom period where we had well above average births, not just relative to the war period, but also even the period following the baby boom where where the birth rate stabilized and, and dropped off a bit. Yeah. So in today's ages, kind of mid 50s to 70s, right, will be our baby boomers. All right. Well, what about their children? What about uh, Gen X's? Um, so, well, say Gen- children. So, what what about Generation X? So, Generation X follows, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. So, Gen X's are obviously a generation after baby boomers, but I guess around the world and especially in Western countries, the birth rates fell again, and so they would be characterized by, I suppose, people born from 1965 all the way up to to the beginning of the 80s, right? So. Today we're thinking like four between forties and mid fifties. And what do you think of like when you think of Gen X? Like what what are the associations that you have with Gen Xs? Uh, Gen Xs. I I think of um, growing up in kind of like uh, like the grunge period, <laughs> this kind of nineties culture actually, like coming of age in the nineties culture. Yeah, I, I think of video games. Like I I feel like that's the generation where like video games went from being like this obscure thing to this like mass mainstream like atari and nintendo and stuff like that although but like i think this is where it gets a little bit gray because boomers they started the video game thing then even like steve jobs who's like this cult sort of silicon valley figure he's actually a boomer right i mean they do tend to say like in terms of emergent or like defining technology for the baby boomers it was television and for Gen X, it was the personal computer. Yes. So even though there's some blurring of that, what you're saying is true where I think that that digital side of the world really started exploding in like email and 
you know, in that it was just the beginning of that period. Okay, so moving on then, millennials or Gen Y? All right, let's throw around some dates. What are we thinking? Yeah, so... Because this is when I always get mixed up. I I never... I always mistime the Gen X to Gen Y. I always get mixed up that, like, somehow, like, Gen Y and millennials are different generations. (laughs) Or where you Um, fit in on the shoulder, because we are on the shoulder. I I do feel like two. Um, No, so, well, you and me are millennials, so we're 81 to 96, I think. Yeah, very good. How would you characterize the differences between a Gen Y or millennial compared to a Gen X? Definitely, definitely social media and Instagram, selfies, and that whole kind of take a photo of your breakfast and (laughs) send it to your friend. Like all that stuff for me is like classic millennial behavior. And the irony now is that like they were like the first generation to be native on social media. But like now the subsequent generation have taken like social media to a whole other level. Like, so I don't know about you, but like I feel fairly like ahead of the curve on social media in the 2000s and then maybe even a little bit early 2010s or whatever. And I kind of felt like I was, I was like I knew all of the social media stuff at that time and like way ahead of the curve, e- even between my brother and, and me. Like so because at school, like everyone would be doing this stuff on, on, the, on the internet and talking to each other on the internet. And, and even between my year and my brother's year, and he's four years older than me, he, he, he always used to like call me like a nerd and all this stuff because I'd be on the computer like you know you just you know but actually I was talking to people and it was a social thing to do and it was the way you you talk to people at school and stuff but that missed my brother's um, generation so or, and he's only four years right but now the new generation like they're the ones that have have figured it all out and how to make like millions of dollars you know how, how to like post videos how to like hack the the algorithm the algorithm and, and yeah and I and for me now, like I feel like a boomer, like on social media because it's it's so far advanced now. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, I think the thing that I really so all of those things, yeah, the smartphone, social, the beginnings of social media. I feel like we are social media pioneers, right? Back in the day of MSN Messenger and MySpace and ICQ. ICQ. Damn ICQ, I love that. <laughs> uh, the little cat and everything. I used to get a little dopamine hit. It was the original. And this idea of like text-based communication, right? And it changing someone's personality you could have an online personality you could communicate more effectively or differently in some ways that's like part of our generation and our kind of formative years in the gen y era reality tv really burst onto the scene i think and became really popular and this idea that and this is something i think boomers really struggle with is like why would i want to watch just watch people big brother big brother like why is there value in just sticking a camera in a house and just watching people do you know like well, it gets share even one worse toilet? Than that. Like, but it get it gets even worse than that. Like you have like goggle box where you watch people watch TV. Like, <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's so kinda, good. <laughs> and yeah, so I actually I think that that again is like a a pioneering genre um, there. And unfortunately, the other major one that I, I I relate to our generation is the proliferation of modern terrorism. You know, like nine eleven. Um, I don't know whether you remember where you were uh, when nine eleven occurred and everything, but I still have like memories, and I think that that is a bit of a defining thing of our generation too. In the same way that maybe the Bay of Pigs was for previous generations, or the Cold War, or in the actual wars going further and further back. Maybe just moving on. Then we're not going to talk that much about the younger generation, but I think it's worth like just acknowledging that those born sort of later than millennials i think you know they 
they are kind of of an age where you know what, what would it be like tw- up to 25 where now they're kind of entering the workforce or you know in many cases someone who's 25 is very much in the workforce so they're increasingly um, starting yeah. to influence the workforce and they're look- thinking about things like buying homes and they're you know they're now grappling with some of the same issues that millennials have um we in we have we have people in in the team that are born in the year 2000 onwards and it's a it's a trip to think about that <laughs> yeah i know it's it's pretty um it's it's just amazing isn't it don't you find that really scary like yeah <laughs> i think it just creeps up on you right because when you join the workforce of course you, you're the youngest person in town and it feels like that for a long time until it just starts to creep up on you and then you're surprised so some of the lens of this obviously will be from a gen y lens into baby boomers and that's because of the like the paternal situation that we have going here our parents are both in the baby boomer generation that's right that's right so i guess my question for you then are boomers the generation that stuffs it up for everyone else i do think that because of the rapid changes and 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 so on i think that you've got a situation where they came out in an environment that was very very idealistic and they they were they were the ones that were going to change the world obviously with my parents having an immigrant background it probably changes things slightly from say australians i suppose that have been here for many generations and how they've participated in property markets and investment and, and the kind of conditions that were afforded to them but i think what we need to do in this conversation is dig in a bit deeper around the exact areas that they've had advantage in and those that need a little bit of myth busting so why don't we start with something like property which is something that always comes up what would you say is the advantage in real terms that the baby boomer generation had with real estate well i I actually curious about your comment around your folks coming from abroad and not having anything to start with and so it being a slightly different story maybe before we get to this i just wonder if you might touch on that a little bit and then maybe we can launch off from there yeah so like the old adage is you know like coming to america with five dollars in your pocket and i think for immigrants that that have come in without any intergenerational wealth and any foot in the door they don't experience the same kind of uh benefits or like a cumulative advantage when it comes to investments properties connections within a community and so all i'm calling out there is that because of that they'll have different attitudes and different advantages when it comes to something we might normally associate with boomer wealth okay that that's good because i think that's a good basis for me to challenge what i think isn't a boomer advantage i don't think boomers and you know i'm going to call them all boomers but um, i generally don't think there was inherited wealth right so the advantage of being a boomer let's say wasn't that oh yeah there was all this money that that came to you when you when you were young and that allowed you to get in the housing market and so on and so forth right these were the children of of depression era parents that didn't build up wealth didn't amass wealth they didn't have um, investment properties they didn't have savings they they were you know hand to mouth sort of thing so i would scratch that off as a boomer advantage like there was no leg up i guess to boomers to get into the housing market they basically started with nothing i guess is what i'm saying uh, i'm not sure that that it really is the case on scale though inheritance and property ownership well, it, has been passed down i think you would probably find very few people who purchased homes in australia like families who purchased home in homes in australia in the you know like let's say the i'm just trying to think the years but let's say the 70s or the 80s right very few of them would have had any support from their parents. Very few. 
It, it wasn't a thing. Didn't happen. Well, there are articles saying that maybe maybe not Australian specific, but um, if if you kind of like Google it, there are quite a few things saying so. Like here, I've got one. I've got boomers as a group inherited trillions from their parents. Like there's I, a big, like, there's a strong I, kind I feel, of like well, middle class in Australia, right? Like, and if I think about like a lot of people I know that that their parents have inherited a lot, and like that's how they've managed to accumulate generation. Now they are, they they inherit it now that their parents have died mm-hmm. as like seventy year olds. Uh, and in the same way as we will when we're 60, 70 or whatever, right? What we're talking about is a leg up like when they were our age, right? My parents, my parents' friends that I know about, you know, they they were like struggling to get into the market as well. They did not have money from parents. There's in well, some you're lashing onto wealth. the inheritance part. I did say in the phrase like it was like more multifaceted than that, right? Like I, st- I still believe, like, regardless of if you think it's less, there's more inheritance in generational wealth that accumulates. So, Andy, what's your thoughts on the arguments that get thrown around with the generational differences in access to real estate? That generation generally was able to enter the housing market when it wasn't quite as nuts as it is now, I think's fair to say. So, I mean, look, so I guess the first thing is like, you know, you hear so many stories of um, people within the baby boomer age bracket purchasing their first home for like $50,000 or $100,000 or something like that. And that just makes our eyes like wide open because, you know, those those properties that, that would have sold for, for those prices however many years ago now have like two or three million dollars sort of price tags or more so younger generations look at that and go well that's a a very clear advantage and just to be clear like obviously inflation is a thing and wages were not of the same magnitude back then as they are now however even if you adjust for inflation or wages like I guess the the cost of housing as a as a proportion of wages was much cheaper yeah. so housing was much cheaper back back then this is such a good barbecue or i mean christmas conversation right so it always comes down to some version of oh you know you know baby boomers they got their house for so cheap and then the baby boomers across the room will say well you know we didn't we didn't earn big bucks back then it's the same and also you guys are suckers because you know we had to deal with 19% 17% interest rates and you're panicking about 3 or 4% but the the real headline here is if you look at wage growth to house prices, right? So the the value of houses nationally has tripled over the past two decades, so up to about 194%. But the wages have only climbed to about 81%. So you can see that controlling for those two factors around wage versus affordability of housing, modern generations are facing a much harder challenge to get into the market, all things considered. Another way of looking at this is to frame it in terms of how many incomes you needed to enter the housing market. So I think for the baby boomer generation, it was very possible to enter the housing market on a single income. Maybe not for everyone, but it was at least common or at least it wasn't unusual for someone to enter the housing market on a single income or yeah. you know one and a half incomes or whatever. But now, uh, certainly in a city like Sydney or Melbourne, you really need f- two full-time incomes. So it's the it's the only way it's possible to to achieve. So that really does exclude or, or make it feel quite exclusionary, I suppose, for younger families, um, people on lower incomes. And there might be a suggestion that oh well, that you know you just need to get a, a you know a cheaper house or a unit for your first property, but 
that's easy to say when you don't like have lots of kids and you need space for them and you don't want to spend an hour and a half commuting to work or whatever to you know and you you can't that just doesn't work that's not how how it works so it, in some ways yeah. it, it's unequivocally harder now than than it was for baby boomers like yeah so let's let's kind of have a bit of a a sideways step into attitudes towards spending and saving because i think that's where again there is a point of conflict when the two attitudes between baby boomers and say our generation rub up against each other and the one that comes to mind is always about food so you've got things like spending money on expensive brunches and you know your smashed avocado examples but what is at the heart of this conflict between the frugality of spending you know paying for food versus um say a baby boomer attitude towards i don't know the old ham sandwich for lunch or whatever it is what's your thoughts I actually think this is a nice way of framing where some of the experiences for baby boomers was actually more challenging for for that generation than for younger generations. So we talked about how housing was so much cheaper, but everything else was actually so much more expensive in relative terms. So housing was way cheaper, but you know, going to a restaurant, for example, or a cafe, those kinds of things were a much higher proportion of their income. Buying a car, buying a TV, buying a computer, buying a flight overseas, for example, all of these expenses as a proportion of their income was way higher. Yeah, look, I mean, so um, I, and I think I've, I've shared this story before about how poor like my parents were back in Malaysia at certain times of their life. And as a result from that, they have like a real hang up, especially around the wasting of things you know so they they kind of we we have a different cultural spin on that but i think it is aligned to boomer culture in general when it comes to food it's this idea of limiting waste and being grateful for the food that you have so i think it's like the cafe coffee culture that we have right where it's really jarring for them to see how much money we spend on on drinks and casual kind of transactional what they kind of see takeaway food and they tend to have a problem with that because they see having a you know the old ham sandwich for lunch as not only healthy they see it as virtuous and frugal and actually this is this is the you know this is being simple enjoying simple food and and being responsible and that's kind of different in our culture right and i think that's shaped by some of the other hard decisions we have around the more expensive items in our life such as housing but in my family there was so many uh, you know there are so many kind of hilarious examples of of that right and like the reuse of things in asian culture you know not throwing away things recycling them if you go to i don't know whether you had you had like uh, asian friends growing up but um you know it's common to have like plastic over the couches and and over you know when the remote control comes with like plastic over it and stuff they'll keep that on in an attempt to try to like extend the life of things i can't laugh at that because my tv still has plastic on it <laughs> I know and it's just this kind of inbuilt thing you know like I remember sitting at my um on the couch and my mum had put like plastic bags inside the stuffing to maintain the stuffing under the pillow so when you laid back into the couch it sounded like you were sitting on a bag of like smith chips and it was like all crinkly and I was like well this is this is just too far and of course nowadays they're not like that anymore they've they've changed their their attitudes and they've been slowly worn down by our modern behavior over time, right? Like you can only fight it for so long where you just, you know, it's like something happens in the boomer mind, especially of an, an Asian kind of person of that generation, like my dad, where he, he remembers the price of something, but like in the 80s, 
And then he just refuses to account for inflation. So every time, you know what the, this is a great story actually, the number one example, and I'm sure a lot of people of Asian heritage can, can relate to this. He's obsessed with the 30 cent soft serve cone in McDonald's. And like for him, it was an atrocity that they ever <laughs> like increased it to 50 cents or a dollar, whatever it is now, because he was like, that was, you know, that was like the benchmark, right? That was the whole, that was the best thing <laughs> about the McDonald's. the only reason you went to McDonald's, right? That you could get a 30 cent soft serve cone when they introduced it. And so he's like, and I think a lot of people do this, right? They freeze the point in time with the price of something when they were growing up or whatever it was in a formative year. And they just get constantly shocked and surprised as it goes up and up. Um, unlike our generation where, you know, when we started our careers, you could pick up lunch for like five, between, you know, five, $6. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay, $8 again towards 10 now. Oh, okay. It's over 10. Oh, okay. Now it's like, it's pretty much $20. All right. There's no cash. So it's just tap and go. Just forget about it. Yes. I'll add the extra guacamole and, and pay another $3. And it's just, it's relentless, you know, but they, they really fight against that. So today's um, economy must be so triggering for boomers because you've got like, you know, so many little like surcharges and hidden, you know, like you, you tap your card and you get like a, you know, some percent, you know, you end up paying like an extra 15 cents or even now, like you go to restaurants or pubs and stuff and you, you order from the table, you scan the QR code and you get the menu on your phone and then you, you order from your phone. And then like, there's a kickback to the app that like <laughs> that, you know, it's like, so it's, it's just that little bit more expensive than if you go up to the counter and order. So you've got like road tolls. So like, I'll go through like the boomer trigger. The yeah. Trigger yeah I, it, it's just, it's just like, cause now you've just got to pay for things, you know, like there are no freebies anymore, but paying, paying for parking, you know, at the beach. And that's why Asians are obsessed with like the price of fruit. You can have at length conversation about like, oh, you know, did you see the other day bananas were at like an all time low of like two ninety nine or something? And it'll it'll mean something to them. Like especially when it comes to food, because it's so closely linked with probably a memory where they didn't have enough. And so when you've been in that situation, like it sticks with you and you care about it. You know, you carry that around with you. And my fear, and I don't know about you, Andy, but my fear is that I'm old enough now to appreciate that, right? appreciate that behavior is actually it's not something that's annoying or or embarrassing it's actually like a really positive thing to care about how you're spending your money mm. and i'm worried that i'm not passing that down to to my kids because uh, we live yeah. a different lifestyle and i'm wasteful we're waste we we are wasteful and especially around food i think we're well we're certainly more wasteful but at the same time i think like human behavior changes based on circumstance so one of the reasons we're not we're, we're more wasteful now is because we don't have scarcity, right? So for the things that maybe for, for the boomer generation were scarce, they were, they were, they conserved, right? Whereas for us now, like I was just thinking the other day when they first started charging for plastic bags in the supermarket for a brief period, I was like, kind of, oh, okay, well, I should use fewer plastic bags. Like, and, and that's actually ironically the, the purpose of it, right? To to reduce plastic use and all that sort of stuff. But now I'm just like, ah, hey, whatever. I, I'll just buy whatever bags I use. Because like at the end of the day, whether I'm paying, you know, 30 cents more because I've gotten three bags or 20 cents more, like it's because I've only got two, like it's not, it's 10 cents, right? Ooh, like, sounds like our vegan episode. <laughs> and, and you know, there's so many other things like that. So where where things are scarce, you you adapt. And I think that's that that's, that's a value like, system. Don't you worry about like, No, because we are frugal about the things that matter, right? So I think we're we're frugal about our time, because that's what's scarce for us. We're frugal about certainly not Netflix and Paramount Plus and Disney Plus subscriptions. But um yeah, I mean like 
the thing the things that w- that are short for us, whether it's our time, whether it's money for you know if we were saving for a deposit for a house or whatever when you know to enter the housing market, like these are the things that that um, we we would we will try and find ways to to save money on. Um, I actually just want to now we talked about housing and we talked about like the ease or the relative ease with which the boomer generation entered the housing market, but want to kind of broaden this to a more general conversation about wealth and wealth accumulation, particularly not just in terms of the family home, but, you know, I think one of the things that I think of when I think of like baby boomers is really they're the first generation to get into like property investment where- That old negative gearing. Yeah, negative gearing. And and they were kind of also the first generation to really inherit wealth when their parents- passed on so you know not necessarily when they were in their 20s 30s but now that they're you know 60 70 years old or whatever so now they're inheriting you know let's say the family home from from their parents and so they're in their the prime of their life maybe they're 50 60 whatever and you know they're, they're probably retired even um, they've they own a home that's now worth many many multiples of what they originally bought it for they maybe own an investment property which is also many multiples of what they bought it for and then they have inherited a house from a home from their parents, which is now worth. Yeah, what, tell like what? What do you think about the boomer generation in terms of wealth and and wealth accumulation? It's it's hard not to sit back and kind of be a little bit disgusted by it all, right? So when you when you step back, right, like at the end of the day, as an investment, is it right for one generation to have such a large amount of property in their portfolio when? other parts of the population in the country can barely afford to get their foot in the door because there are differences in financial outcomes and security for people who never end up owning their property when they come to say retirement and things like that. Is that an issue generationally? I, I, I wonder about this too because like I, I think one of the classic litmus test questions is, is the generation that follows you going to be better off, right? And I think one of the questions that we have to genuinely ask ourselves now is we're not so sure, certainly not in the context of housing. Like I think there are a whole bunch of other things that um, that we can talk about where boomers had it, had it harder and whatever else. But certainly in terms of housing, I think unequivocally it's the case that by virtue of, you know, kind of so much of the housing stock being held by baby boomers, you know, the, the direct implication of that is that less than the fair share is is a you know owned by other generations right so and that does have intergenerational wealth kind of implications insofar as well you know maybe if you view it as like a family institution and that wealth will be transferred on and whatever else and then it doesn't matter but is it necessarily always like that like what about people who aren't going to inherit wealth what about new migrants to the country what about you know, so it does sort of exacerbate these intergenerational equity issues. So, yeah, I, I think that's a bit of a concern. And of course, like just back to the kind of, you know, the OK Boomer piece, right? When talking about housing, like, you know, the Boomer generation were very liberal with their comments of, oh, well, this is all you need to do to enter the housing market. It's just a bit sort of tone deaf, I think, when you've got, uh, you know, everything has come quite easy, comparatively speaking, for, for that age cohort in terms of housing, not necessarily everything else, but in terms of housing, that I think younger people just don't want to hear their advice about getting into the housing market. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially when you need two full-time incomes 
to enter the market and if you've got kids, young kids or whatever, it's it's like, well, how, how is this possible? It's, it's impossible. But like we talk about how boomers have had this sort of, you know, really easy, easy run, right, when it comes to housing. But I think we have a Stephen Bradbury in this race. And for those who don't know who Stephen Bradbury is, he is an Australian ice skater, uh, like a speed skater. And there's this really famous... I still don't know what that is, even though you're scrubbing it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's like the most famous gold medal win in Australian Winter Olympics history. And what happened is he's speed skating around this the ice rink and he's coming last. And then all of the other skaters, one by one, fall over, tumble over each other. And he's coming last and he's just, he's like in shock because he's the only, he's so far behind that he doesn't get knocked over by the others. And he he glides past with this really shocked look on his face and he wins the gold medal. <laughs> and I think the Stephen Bradbury of uh, generations in Australia is actually, actually Gen X. So no one talks about Gen X. So everyone's like out there like, slagging off the boomers and you know the boomers talk about the millennials and how they just whinge all the time you know how hard it is to get into the housing market but you know that they're whinging because they're all going to get avocado and toast and they're all got high paying jobs and low interest rates and you know they're earning much more money than than boomers ever earned in the labor market when they were younger but you've got gen x in the middle they had the best of both worlds they had high paying jobs throughout most of their careers so this is the generation that now are earning like the big bucks so they're still in the labor market earning very high salaries, but they were also of an age where they could enter the housing market when house prices were orders of magnitude less than they are now. So Gen X, this is those born 1965 to 1980. So they, these were people like probably looking to get in the housing market. Well, let's just say the the 90s to mid 90s to maybe 2000s, like house prices were way cheaper then. And if they got into the market then, their property portfolio dramatically increased in in price, but they've still had the benefits of like high salaries. They've had far lower costs during their career than than either of the generations, either baby boomers or Gen Y. So I think Gen X, like they're just kind of hoping no one looks at them because I reckon they're the biggest beneficiaries, and they'll get on the inheritance from the baby boomers, you know. So in a few years, <laughs> I, the, I the think thing with, um, with Gen Xs, and I tend to agree, like they. They just somehow have, have got the best PR team, right? Like they just managed to stay out of it. But um, it's also split between families. Like I know, say, like in my family, my sister's Gen X, right? But I'm Gen Y. But really, we're under the same roof. We're on the same, you know, like so. It all depends on timing of the market, and just having, like you said, that five or ten years earlier into the housing market has made a huge difference in Australia, well, in a lot of countries. But uh, yeah, so why I mentioned that is that I guess that. The Gen Xs and Gen Ys will, in some ways, split inheritances uh, over the, the course of the next kind of decade or so, um, which will be interesting too, because, like you said, one one sibling may have a lot more wealth or a higher portfolio than the other sibling, yet the in- inheritance kind of comes together because it's a family unit. So there there may be um, some tough conversations ahead for for those families and those households. I, I suspect them Gen Xs ain't sharing. That's what I mean, right? Yeah. Like, so why should they share? Or- I don't. I don't think there's going to be any um, distributional um, <laughs> considerations going on. But, but isn't that isn't that the thing? You know, like fa- that 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 time of life is tough, right? Like you can see great families break down under family law situations, you know, and inheritance and all that. I think we're heading for a little bit of that, right? Because now the money is significant coming from baby boomers and transferring to younger generations. It's not something that we've historically handled well 
also think it's just a natural thing that occurs when you get older. Like I think every generation, as you as you age, you look at the younger generation and they have the same kind of opinion. They think that they're, you know, disrespectful, lazy, no good. And this is something that's well documented going all the way back to ancient times. So I think a little bit of it is that as well, right? I'm I'm a bit more curious to um, just to move off move off housing for a minute. But we mentioned that the attitudes towards saving and spending and waste and all that kind of stuff. What do you think is is the is the situation with parenting and child rearing? Because when you again, this could be a cultural thing, but I'm definitely sure that our parents' generation uh, were raised in a way that was much more, I suppose, brutal. It wasn't very child centric. Um, a lot of them have stories of being hit at school, so physically disciplined. And as a result, you know, a lot of our parents' generations or boomers didn't pass that on to, the, to their kids. That's another thing that I think gets um, caught up here that modern parenting, and as a result, they probably think we're too soft on our kids, which we may be. But what's, what's your take on that? Over time, I think societal attitudes to kids has just got more and more soft, right? So if you go back like 100 years, like kids were treated very, very harshly and they were like, you know, taught to be disappointed as early as possible, right? Should um, be seen, not heard. And maybe that was just something to do with the value of kids, like because they didn't always survive or whatever. But anyway, more and more and more, like the, the doting focus on kids has just increased you know, exponentially. And, and this is a trajectory, not just like between like baby boomers and millennials or whatever, millennial parents. This is this has been going on for probably hundreds of years, right? So I just see this as an extension of that. And uh, one of the other areas where I think this has had an impact is with increasing sort of expectation or, or fathers playing a much more sort of hands-on role because they've had to because, you know, the mother is not the stay-at-home kind of full-time parent and then fathers don't get away with like not helping out 50-50. Maybe that's not true of everyone, but I do feel certainly among the people I know, fathers sort of play the 50-50 role in a way that I don't think happened in previous generations. So I don't, there's, there's no thinking about it, Andy. They definitely didn't. <laughs> um, or if they did, they were the exception. But I suppose more generally just treating kids. Like I, I do feel like that increasingly there's this, oh, you've got to be mindful of the emotional well-being of a child and you know, a lot, lot more of that as opposed to, no, no, you just like tell them what the fuck to do and when to do it and how to do it and they've just got to shut up. And do you think it's a good thing? I think there's probably a bit of overshooting, right? So I think definitely like being aware of each child's need that you don't treat them like as cookie cutter and maybe you like pay more attention to how they're reacting to different things. That's a step in the right direction. But the risk is that you throw out other traditions that have worked really, really well when it comes to parenting, which maybe seem like they contradict that approach. So for example, you know, sleep training might be one. So one view might be, oh no, no, you've got to pay attention to the needs of your child. So when the child cries, you've got to you you've got to pick the child up and you've got to understand and whisper to the child to understand what it's what it what it needs at that that moment in time. But of course, that's a recipe for disaster if you do that every time, right? So this moment when you realize that no, 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 you've got to like not be that type of parent. You actually need to be the type of parent who is going to teach your child to sleep, basically, which is, you know, a combination of like letting them cried out or you know just not responding to every every little whimper they make right so whether it's that or, or any other example where tough love you know that that kind of being a bit more harsh or, or a bit tougher on kids so they learn some life lessons young i feel like that's 
something that you know baby boomers would look at young parents and go, oh, they're, they're soft. They're too soft on their kids nowadays. It's funny though, isn't it? Because I see them like they, they, they would be the same thing. It's like I got the stick at school. I got heavily disciplined. They're the ones that are soft. Do you know what I mean? And then there's just a progression towards that um, more child-centric view that you're saying, right? And so I wonder sometimes in the same way that I'm talking about not passing on values to our kids, whether they feel the same. It's like, oh, you know, of course I didn't want to like physically assault my kids, but did I spoil them because of that or something? Or they are they soft now because of that? And then they're just passing it on. I wonder how much self-reflection there is there. I, I feel like as well, there, there are a whole bunch of things which even today, I think a lot of modern families would say are still kind of important traditions for the family, but that we kind of didn't necessarily implement. So now kind of that my son's a bit older, I can I definitely see some areas where, oh, yeah, wish I had that again, I'd, we would have done that. So, you know, just things like being really disciplined around like, you know, having a family dinner and, and have, having dinner time. And it's like, no, no, this is the time we all sit at the table. We all eat the same meal. We talk to each other about what we do. And probably, you know, the reason that didn't work for us is because of our lives, like our busy lives. Like, you know, I would come home from work, like, let's say seven o'clock. That doesn't work. You can't, like, when kids need to go to bed at seven o'clock, you can't feed, you can't have family dinner at seven o'clock, you know? So much of, like, I think these kind of institutions of the family, there's a really good reason they exist and, and, they, and they're tried and true and tested. But I don't feel like we kind of necessarily in all cases found the the way to make them work in our busy lives. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And it was a big part of my upbringing, uh, even more so, again, bringing in that Asian values of having family dinner. Just to, to eat in front of the TV as a family, unthinkable, has honestly never happened even once with my parents. And I can't say the same for myself but and my family, but uh, it's just, you know, that's that's kind of how it was. Something that I've been thinking about too is that obviously we, we've been talking about some of the negative stereotypes with boomers here, but some things I think that we lose sight of sometimes is their contribution to social change and, and addressing injustices and inequality. Do you think that they're not celebrated enough for their activism? Well, I think they were activists while they could be and then when they had to start earning money, they became nine to five corporate types, didn't they? But do you think that they ushered in those that social change and should be celebrated for that? We've grouped together people who were born within a certain set of years as one sort of team, you know, the boomer team. But they're not a team. They're not a collective force. They don't sit around a, you know, a, a, a boardroom table and make decisions on behalf of, of their generation and decide what, what social order they're going to bring in. So in the same way as millennials aren't a team, boomers also aren't a team. And so, no, you don't give credit to a generation for that. They just happen to be the generation subject to, to quite big changes. Mm, fair enough. Trying to find a silver lining here. I, although <laughs> um, I would say that but, I think yeah, they're more of a team yeah. than millennials are. Oh, I don't know. These these millennials like to um, get together and um, slag off boomers and um, and how hard it is to buy a house. I think that's coming from more Gen Z, to be honest. What for you are like the biggest misunderstandings or gaps in terms of outlook and way of viewing the world that you think, not necessarily with your parents, but even with just other people of, of that age group? I think um, the biggest thing is probably the divide of social media. And even that I think is changing now that Facebook is like the grey nomads. <laughs> you know, like I feel like um, that boomer generation has like taken over Facebook in the last kind of five years, especially. But 
I think I'll stand by that comment around social media and it's not just social media, but what it stands for, which is this, as described, I think stereotyped as this narcissistic oversharing, like everyone wants to be a celebrity who gives a shit what you ate for lunch. Like the nerve of you to post your spaghetti bolognese on, uh, on Instagram, like anyone cares. So I kind of, I think social media is right up there in that respect. You mentioned taking photos of food, but just more generally food itself. So if I think about like our age group and younger, there's a lot of passion or, or enthusiasm in trying different types of food and going to the, you know, the nice restaurant and, and treating food as an experience. So it's not just the food you're eating, like the calories and the carbs and whatever that's going to your body. Yeah. It's the actual experience of going out for dinner to a nice restaurant where that's the thing you're doing. It's that's the entertainment for the night. And I don't think boomers get that at all. So, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm saying this in, a, in broad terms, but like many boomers don't get that right. There was like it, the steakhouse for dates and so, like, you know, when you graduated pretty much. Yeah. And, and it would be very value oriented. So it's like, oh, that place is good value. You get really big plates there for- Not stingy with the chips, are they? <laughs> let's, let's fill up with some, some chips before the meal so we don't have to order as much. You know, some of these things as well, like come down to age and not generation. So the older you get, I think you just have your range of things yeah. that you're kind of happy with and content with and probably reach a certain age where all the good things you've tried and, and you've got enough things in your repertoire that you know about that you, you're satisfied with that the moment someone tries to add something new, some <laughs> new experience into, into the mix, it's like, ah, this is more than like, like if I haven't already experienced it, my expected value of this experience is is negative. So I just don't want anything new, just like yeah, the stick with the stuff I know and I like. Because you can tell it already happens to us, right? Think of it like discovering new music, how easily you wake up one day and you're like, all the music that I like is the same music I've liked for the last two decades. And I'm getting less and less adventurous to to new things. Yeah. And I think that that happens to everyone, right? Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. And with music, like actually before you, you we, we talked about um, generations and, you know, trying to trying to give a, give, give the boomers credit for something. I'll tell you what though. Music is is the one thing they do have the other generations on on that. I'd I'd have to say, yeah, recognize the respect when it's due. Um, okay, so let let's be real and turn the mirror on us for a moment. If I said the line to you that our generation is soft compared to baby boomers, which parts of that would you agree with? In in which ways do we not live up to say our parents? I don't think our parents complained as much about their circumstances to their parents. And I think that's clearly because they didn't have much of a story to tell, right? So they didn't have the relationship maybe either. Uh, well, p possibly, but also it's hard to complain about like house prices and how expensive and how hard life is as a baby boomer when your parents like went to, were like fighting in the trenches or um, yeah. didn't have a job for five years or whatever because of the depression or had to build their own home or, you know, so. Mm. But I also think, think if your parents beat you, then you're less likely to complain to them. Well, that's true. So I think definitely millennials are far more whingy or, you know, soft in that sense, if they, if that's the, the description to use. What else you got for me? In what um, other ways? Look, in terms of housing, like if as a millennial, you can pull off the housing market sort of thing and depends on like, there are some millennials who are in the housing market. There are some millennials who are not in the housing market. They are potentially, and I don't know, like this is a story yet to be written, but they are potentially setting themselves up to be like the next kind of generation that can legitimately be criticized for all the same things that 
one might criticize the boomer generation for. So because they are the ones that are going to inherit wealth, um, they're the ones that are going to, you know, have gotten into the housing market, like the boomer wealth is going to have been transferred onto the next generation eventually. And, you know, a lot of, you know, millennials now are in good jobs and are earning a lot of money and earning a lot more money than their parents did. So I think certainly in terms of disposable income, and I think this is back to like when we were talking about how hard it was being being a boomer, like uh, I think we should always remember that disposable income for millennials today is is more than it was for boomers, even factoring in housing costs. So there's a reason boomers didn't go to cafes and it's because they couldn't afford to. Yeah. My, like looking inward, I would say that in the way that our generation is softer, I definitely feel like there was, I agree with you, there was more of a stoicism, like a stoic vibe to our parents' generation. So that that kind of is um, in line with less complaining, I suppose. They copped a lot more of life's bumps in a very kind of internal way. Now, that might not have been a great thing for mental health, and I'm sure that that plays out in different ways, um, but I do agree. The second part is ah, plain and simple kind of, it's adjacent to work ethic, but in a very specific form being like, home maintenance or yard work or or things like that. And I, I do think that, I don't know if you've had this experience that like the attitude towards like an arduous task is just tolerated better by that generation because it was, I think they were just more used to that. There's like, it was not on the table to pay for a gardener in the same way it is today or to pay for a cleaner or pay for services that, you know, is you just pick up your, pick yourself up and, and you do it. Like, your time's free, get it, get it done. And I think maybe that's a reflection on some of the your comments about being time poor. And I think that goes for other things too, like work ethic and, you know, like this idea of like never having a sick day, never taking a sick day. Yeah. And being proud of that, like, because that's part of you and your identity. Whereas now it's like, you know, p- people have 10 sick days a year and they take all of them sort of thing. And loyalty to companies too probably falls Oh, yeah. That. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a badge of honor that I've worked for, you know, the same company and got the golden watch at the end. But now it's seen as like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. I can't get a job anywhere else. Do you ever buy the three litre bottles on? I can't fit them in the fridge because they're